this time of year may be perhaps my favorite time of year. Springtime. So much newness around us. So much new life is springing forward. The birds are laying their eggs and building their nests. And new birds' families are hatching. And the grass is greening up. And the trees are all bursting forth with blooms and leaves and flowers. There's so much newness around springtime. Springtime is a time of new life. And we are in spring now, even though the thermometer says that we're still in winter. The calendar says that we're in spring. And we can see those signs around us, can't we? Just, not just the longer days, but we can see the new life springing all around us. And I think that one of the areas that we see new life the clearest is in the trees. We're blessed to live in a place here with lots of hardwood trees around us. And those hardwood trees are not so nice to look at in the wintertime. They get all brown and just cold and um, not very welcoming. But in the springtime, all that brownness turns into bursting greenness. And the difference between the two is, I think, what makes uh, springtime in the southeast so special. So we see these leaves coming forward and they remind us of this incredible cycle that God has created with the leaves falling off and growing new ones in the spring. I don't know if you've thought much about that whole process of a tree that loses its leaves and grows new ones every year. But it's quite an incredible process. If you think about how each tree will have thousands, perhaps tens or hundreds of thousands of leaves that every single year have to be replaced. It's an enormous amount of effort that God has put into each tree. And then you consider the billions of trees that we have and the trillions and trillions of leaves that grow every spring. It's quite a phenomenal process. Well, when the, a tree loses its leaves in the winter or in the fall, and those leaves fall off, do you know what causes those leaves to then fall off? You'd probably say the wind. Right? And the wind is responsible for a great deal of those leaves that come off the tree. But did you know that not all of the leaves are lost to the wind? Did you know that if, for example, a tree lives in an area in which it's largely shielded from the wind around it, maybe, a, maybe it's in a heavily forested area or in a place where it doesn't receive a whole lot of wind, did you know that sometimes a hardwood tree can keep its old leaves throughout the whole winter? And you may have even seen, if you've been in, the, in a forest, and you've seen a hardwood tree that was shielded from the wind around it, you may have seen that it kept many of its leaves throughout the winter. Well, do you know what it is that finally causes that tree to then lose all of those old leaves? The new leaves. The new buds that come out on the tree force all of the old leaves that haven't fallen off to then eventually fall off. The new life in the tree forces the life to evacuate. The old deadness has to fall off when the new life comes behind it. And within that, I think, is a very effective analogy for our spiritual lives. In the same way that a tree loses its remaining deadness that's hanging on to it, it loses that by way of the new life in it pushing the deadness out in the same way the deadness of our sin gets pushed off of us by the newness of life that comes 
specifically through the revival of God's people, both individually and corporately. When we are revived through repentance and faith, that new life that springs forth in us has a way of forcing the old deadness that still clings to us. It forces that to then drop off. We're going to look this morning at a passage of Scripture that is going to illustrate that concept for us, I think, very effectively. The passage that we're looking at this morning is connected very closely to the previous passage from last week. So if you have your Bibles, join me in the letter of world evangelism, the letter of global, uh, the, of global kingdom work, the letter of Acts. We're in chapter 19 this morning. And let's just, as we're turning there, we'll just remind ourselves of where we are from last week. Remember last week, Paul has returned back to Ephesus. He left Aquila and Priscilla there in Ephesus to labor for the Gospel while he made this trip to Antioch by way of Jerusalem. And then he sets out on his third missionary journey and he comes through the region of Galatia walking some five to 700 miles to strengthen the churches. He gets to the church in Ephesus and he begins laboring there. And then you remember how Luke has connected these three stories together these three stories of the missing ingredient. Three stories in which we see how people have religion, but no life. They have religion, but no Savior. They know about Jesus. In a couple of instances, they even love God and want to serve God and know God and are telling other people about God, yet they lack the missing ingredient. The missing ingredient was the atonement of the cross, the the Savior that is in Jesus and what He did on the bloody cross and the empty tomb and the life that comes through that and the Holy Spirit that indwells believers. That was the missing ingredient that they were missing. And when Apollos and the twelve disciples learned of that, they were then converted, filled with the Spirit, and we saw evidence of that in the two passages before. But then last week we looked at the third instance of those who are missing the key ingredient. They've got some religion, but they don't have a Savior. And that was the sons of Sceva. Remember, they wanted to use the power of Jesus without knowing Jesus. They knew His name. And they knew that Paul was doing some powerful things by virtue of that name. But they didn't know Jesus. But So they tried to invoke the name of Jesus to cast out this demon from this demon-possessed man. Well, turns out that, uh, remember what the demon said, Jesus I know, Paul I've heard of, but who are you again? And then he jumped on them, he mastered them, ripped their clothes off, they barely escaped with their lives. And then when the church saw it, that was the main point that Luke was making. When the church saw what happened, they were convicted and they were led to repentance themselves. Repentance of their sin of magic and the occult. Remember how he talked about the city of Ephesus was just covered up with the sin of witchcraft and magic and the, the practices of the occult. And so all the people came and they repented. The people I'm speaking of here are the believers in Ephesus, those who have been converted. They are convicted of that remaining sin that still is in them. And they come and they bring their books and they burn their books and they separate themselves definitively and publicly from the sin that once ensnared them. And so they burn their books and revival comes to the church in Ephesus. And then it has an effect on the world around them. And that's what Luke ends with last week in verse 20. He ends by just sort of mentioning the effect that this has on the world around them. But then he's going to go on in the passage today to really flesh out what that effect looked like on the people of Ephesus. So if you're with me in Exodus, uh, Exodus, Ephesians, no, Acts is where we are, right? 
If you're with me in Acts chapter 19, we'll pick up here in verse 17. We'll back up a few verses and kind of get a running start at it. From verse 17, this will remind us of the revival that took place in Ephesus. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Therefore, verse 21, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit. We see once again there, Paul's life is constrained by the Spirit. You remember when the Spirit would not allow him to go to Asia? He's in Asia now, by the way. The Spirit has now allowed him to go. Ephesus is in Asia. But you remember when Paul was constrained to not go to Ephesus? Paul's life is so controlled by the Spirit that the Spirit literally tells him the direction that he should go. The Spirit leads him. Remember with that message we talked about how does the Spirit communicate His will to Paul? We fleshed all of that out. But Paul's life is so surrendered to the Spirit that it is in the Spirit that he makes the decisions of his travel plan. So he resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, or in other words, Greece, and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So here we see the beginnings of Paul's infatuation, so to speak, with Rome. This is the first time we hear of Paul going to Rome, but we're going to hear a lot more about it. Paul is consumed with getting to Rome. He must get to Rome. The Spirit is compelling him to get to Rome. And so he is now going to begin this journey that's going to take him to Rome by way of Jerusalem, although he's not going to get to Rome in the way that he thinks he's going to or hopes he's going to. He's going to get to Rome in chains. But nevertheless, he is, he is convinced in the Spirit that Rome is where he must go. Just as Jesus. Remember, Jesus was on a mission to get to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem was the city that murdered all of its prophets, and Jesus, as the prophet, must go to Jerusalem to be murdered. In a, in a similar way, Paul must go to Rome because it is the gospel that he must take to those in Rome. And so he begins this here, this, um, this infatuation, so to speak, this sanctified infatuation with Rome. And then, verse, uh, verse 22, "...and having sent to Mas- into Macedonia two of his helpers..." Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So he sends Timothy and Erastus back over to Macedonia to help with the churches over there. Timothy we know. Erastus, we don't have a clue. We never hear about him again. So he apparently is not too important to the story that Luke wants to tell. But he sends these two Christians to Macedonia to help over there. Then verse 23, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That's going to be Luke's favorite phrase of referring to Christians and to the church, the way. It probably was how they referred to themselves as the way. It probably came from John 14.6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The, the, the way of following Christ is a way of life. And this is how they describe themselves, which is a very accurate description. So concerning the way, this, this disturbance, which was no little disturbance, arose for a man named Demetrius a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. 
And you see then here that not only in Ephesus, but on almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made the hand, that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into dis- disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So, let's pause right there. And let's notice the first, the first effect, so to speak, of this greening of revival. We talked about how the green leaves of spring will push out the deadness. New life will push out the remaining deadness that's hanging on. And when that happens, it has an effect. And the first effect that we see in the passage is that that this new life that comes from repentance of sin and revival has the effect of changing the culture around us. In the same way that a tree that grows new leaves and forces the dead leaves off, will also change the landscape around it. It'll change the tree line. It'll change what your yard looks like. It'll definitely change what it looks like under the tree, right? It changes the landscape around it. In the same way, the new life that comes from revival also changes the culture around it. One of the things that can be difficult, I think, for us to grasp is the pervasiveness of idol worship in the ancient world. We know that people in the ancient world worshipped idols. We read about it in the Scriptures. We've probably seen pictures of their little statues in our history books and whatnot. But what can be difficult to grasp is the, is the pervasiveness of that idol worship, of the, the burning intensity of idol worship. Idol worship consumed ancient people. No more so than our idol worship does today, by the way. We, our intensity of worshiping our idols is, is just as great today. It just looks different. But in the ancient world, people worshiped idols, not casually, but with burning intensity. And what we see is that within 300 years of the beginning of Christianity, idol worship had all but disappeared. Now that's not to say that it disappeared everywhere. For even today, there's places where people still worship literal idols. South Asia, for example. But it is to say that largely, idol worship had gone away 300 years or so after the beginning of Christianity because Christianity so changed the culture around it that literally the culture in which it lived got changed. We see this happening in Ephesus. We see that this was no small movement here in Ephesus. Uh, Demetrius is not going to stand up and make this speech just because uh, half a dozen people or a dozen people or even a couple dozen people had come to faith in Jesus. This was a larger movement in that than that. But more importantly than how many people are coming to Jesus, what we see is that the culture in Ephesus is getting changed because the Christians in Ephesus are starting to act like Christians. They're starting to take their faith very seriously. They're starting to be very serious about following Christ. Our culture around us is no doubt in great need of transformation. But the transforming of our culture will not take place by the transforming of ungodly people. The transforming of our culture will take place by the transformation of the church. When Christians get serious about following Christ, 
When Christians take seriously the command to be holy for I am holy, when we take that seriously and we start truly living that out in our culture, we will, just like the tree, we will change not only the tree itself, but we will change the landscape that is around the tree as well. In many ways, the church today has the same dead leaves hanging on it that much of the culture around us has as well. Many of the same leaves of of dead materialism and self-worship, those same dead brown leaves hang on the church just like they hang on the culture around us. The only difference is in the church, we're much better at justifying that. We're much better at excusing our sin and calling our sin something else, calling our sin actually good. We justify our sin. And so what that produces is not a vibrant, life-filled tree that is changing the landscape around it. What that produces is hypocrisy, and hypocrisy doesn't change the culture around us. Hypocrisy hardens the culture around us. When ungodly people see Christians with the same dead leaves hanging on them, yet the Christians think that their tree is really all green, that doesn't change the culture. That hardens the culture. Those people aren't really changed. They're not really any different than me. Why would I want what they have? That hardens the culture. It doesn't change the culture. But true light will always displace dark. That is a characteristic of light. Light displaces darkness. And it displaces darkness all around it. And here's the key. Light doesn't just displace darkness inside the lampshade. But light will also displace darkness outside of the lampshade, assuming the light is bright enough. And the lamp is not, as Jesus said, hidden under a bushel. Assuming the light is bright enough and it's not hidden under a bushel, a light will not only transform the area inside the lampshade, think church, but the area outside the lampshade as well because light will dispel darkness. And because the light of the church in our culture is not sufficiently bright, therefore sin is prevalent in our culture. The prevalence of sin in our culture is a result of the weakness of the church. Listen to what Peter says. This is in your sermon notes. This this is what Peter says about how the church should transform the landscape around it. Verse chapter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. In other words, Christians act like Christians. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they, when, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see how this changing the landscape around them. Unbelievers are changing what they say and do because the Christians are serious about following Christ. Be subject to the Lord for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You see, when Christians are serious about following Christ, then even those who don't believe are changed. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. In other words, no hypocrisy. Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. 
When Christians are serious about following Christ, the culture around us has changed. When we are revived through repentance and renewed faith, the life of that revival will push off the remaining deadness that hangs on us, and when that happens, the landscape around us will be changed. And as that change takes place, one of the clearest ways to see that, one of the clearest places that we see how the church changes the culture in which it lives is in how that culture spends its money. The economy of the culture in which the church lives will be changed. In other words, to put it a different way, when Christians are serious about following Christ, that new life that springs forth from revival that pushes off the dead leaves will impact the culture around it in the place of its anatomy that is most sensitive, and that's its pocketbook. Take a look with me in verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Light affects Believers and light affects non-believers alike. And when light affects non-believers, one of the clearest places that you see that is in how non-believers spend their money. Let's, let me flesh this out just a little bit by taking a look in your sermon notes at Jesus' words in John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Jesus says this, And this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Here's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying this. When the light comes into the world, it exposes the sins of the darkness. And we love those sins and we don't necessarily give those sins up, but we love those sins to stay in the dark. And when those, those sins in the darkness are exposed to the light... Sometimes we will forsake those sins and turn to Christ. Sometimes we still will cling to those sins. But either way, those sins become less prevalent and less powerful and less visible. Light has pushed them into the dark corners. This is what's happening in Ephesus. Many people have come to faith in Jesus. Even those who have already had faith in Jesus have become much more serious about their faith. And the light of that revival, that, the light of that new life is exposing the sin around them. And people are turning from idols. Even those who still believe in idols are less willing to buy them now because their sins are no longer in the dark. A great analogy for this is the analogy of pornography. You know, our culture has had a problem with pornography for a long time. A long time before I was born. Our culture had a problem with pornography. But when I was a kid, in order to engage in the sin of pornography, you had to do it in the light. You had to go to the store and buy and risk the clerk recognizing you or telling your parents or, or risk being seen in the store buying that pornography or risk having it found in your bedroom or wherever you wanted to hide it from your parents. Or you had to care more about the pornography. You had to want the pornography more than you cared about your reputation. 
You had to care more about that pornography than you cared about what the mailman thought about you when he brought it to your house, right? That's how the sin of pornography existed a generation ago. But the internet has changed all of that. The internet has taken the same sin and moved it into complete darkness to such a degree now that no one ever need to know. No one ever need to know that you are engaging in that sin. And what that has done is this. It has not made people any more sinful or more depraved. They still love the same sins they always loved. Only now it has exploded in popularity because it can be done in the dark. Experts don't even want to estimate how much the industry of pornography has grown since the internet. We talk about things growing and increasing tenfold or a hundredfold or even a thousandfold. That doesn't even apply to the industry of pornography. They talk in, in terms of the, of the money spent on pornography today has increased hundreds of thousands of fold. More money today is spent on pornography than Major League Baseball, NFL football, NBA basketball, and NHL hockey combined. People aren't any more sinful than they were 30 years ago. But that sin is now in the dark. And because it's in the dark, there's no barriers. You can engage in that sin without having the light shined upon it. And that is what's given rise to such a prevalence there. The opposite thing is happening here in Ephesus. The light has been shined on it and people still love their idols and a lot of them haven't turned from their idols. But because the light is shining on it, they are now much less willing to spend their money on it. So the, the church, the revival from the church, has caused a change in how the economy of that culture works, on what people spend their money on. We've seen the same thing in Philippi. Remember when it impacted the pocketbook of the slave owner's girl? Then it became a problem. That's where the sensitive area is. When, when the light shines on the darkness, the darkness hates that. But when those sins can take place in the darkness, then they, they can grow uninhibited. When the church is being the church in a culture, it, it serves as the light to keep those sins at bay. Now please hear me carefully, because it would be easy right now to understand that what I'm saying is, the, is that our goal is to make non-believers act like believers. Right? By, being, by being the church in our culture, we can make non-believers act like believers. And that's not the goal, folks. The goal is that non-believers would be believers. But Scripture does teach us that one effect of the light is that even those who continue to love the darkness will be suppressed. And this is exactly what is happening in Ephesus. Remember, um, remember sometime back on a Sunday night we watched that short message by Dr. Erwin Orr about revival and spiritual awakening. If you were there on that night, then you remember that one of the things that he hit on repeatedly was how revival changes the economies of cultures in which those revivals take place. And he talked about the Welsh revival. He talked about the revival in Wales. Remember all the stories that he told about how each time revival would break out, there would be a skyrocketing number of bankruptcies in the bars and different things. People who made their profits by supplying goods and services to feed other people's sins, they found that they were in dire straits when revival came. A lot of people turned 
those sins, but even the ones who didn't turn from them were much less willing to spend their money openly about those things. So he talked about that. He even talked about how those people whose livelihood comes not by providing goods and services to feed other people's sin, but instead their livelihood comes from restraining other people's sin. Remember how he talked about even they had their livelihood affected. He talked about the, 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 uh, the police in Wales. Remember that? The police in Wales had so little to do. When revival broke out, they had so much time on their hands that you know what, remember what they did? They formed the quartets and they would send the police quartets to all the revival meetings because they didn't have anything else to do. Same with the magistrates and the judges. When revival breaks out, it affects the economy of the culture in which it, in which it lives. In the same way that it is true that you can judge your faith by looking at your pocketbook or your checkbook, in the same way you can judge the faith activity of the church by looking at the economy of the culture in which it lives. And folks, you can continue to live in the illusion that we live in a, in a Christian culture if you like. But the fact remains that the economy of the culture in which we live shows us very clearly that people have no problem whatsoever investing lots and lots of resources into goods and services that feed the sins of other people. And likewise, we must invest lots and lots of our resources on those people whose livelihood works to restrain the effects of sin upon our culture. We need revival in our culture and we need it in a bad way. If Christianity does not affect the economy of a culture, then we don't have a whole lot of Christianity, do we? So that's the first effect that we see. New spiritual life affects those around us. Both those who are receivers of that new spiritual life and those who aren't. The second effect that we see is that new spiritual life brings persecution. Let's look in verse uh, 26. Verse 26, And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Let me can I pause right there and just make a comment on that. Have you ever heard a more stupid thing? I mean, is that not just the stupidest thing you've ever heard come out of anybody's mouth? Here's this guy Demetrius saying, do you know what that guy Paul is saying? He's actually telling people that gods that we make with our hands aren't really gods. Can you believe that? It's like, yeah. The silver gods that you make with your hands, Demetrius, really are worthy of your worship. Remember the guy in, in Isaiah 44 who cuts down a tree and uses half of it to burn for, to warm himself by the fire and cook his food. The other half he makes it into an idol and worships it and says, save me. And Isaiah's like, how stupid is that? This is the same guy. He is so blinded by his sin that he literally cannot see the utter fallacy of what he's saying. And sometimes sin will do that to us. Sometimes sin will blind us so completely that we cannot even see the illogical nature of our own sin. Take, for example, the arguments today that are put forth for abortion. I don't know if you pay attention to those. They are utterly nonsensical. It is utterly irrational. Those who argue for the right to murder unborn children. Um, sometimes our sin can blind us so much in that way and it has blinded Demetrius. So he says, 
This guy Paul is saying that these little trinkets that we make with our hands aren't really God's. Can you believe that? We need to stop this guy. Verse 27, And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis, or if you're reading in the King James, it may say Diana there, Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. There's another point that's worth noting right there. Listen, think of what Demetrius just said. Demetrius just said this. We're in danger here, guys, because people are starting to not worship Artemis. And if this keeps on going, then Artemis will lose her magnificence. Think about it. Here's a god or a goddess that derives her glory from what people think of her. And so therefore, if people begin to think less of her, whoa, then she's going to lose her magnificence. She's going to lose her glory. Folks, aren't you glad that we serve a God whose glory is not dependent upon what we think of Him? God desires our worship and our worship gives Him glory, but His glory is not dependent upon what we think of Him. Whether we think highly of Him or lowly of Him. God's glory is not dependent upon anything outside of Himself. He's not dependent on the fact that people worship Him or people think highly of Him or His church is successful in cultures. His glory is dependent on nothing but His own power and majesty and sovereignty. Artemis, on the other hand, is a slave to what people think of her. So this is what he says, she whom all in Asia will worship. Maybe she's going to fall into disrepute. Then verse 28 when they heard this, they were enraged and crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed together into the theater. This, this theater in, in Ephesus, archaeologists tell us it, it seated about 25,000 people. So this was a huge thing. This was a huge deal. This was not a riot of a couple of hundred people. This was thousands and thousands of people that were now whipped up into a riot. They were enraged. They were angry, they were confused, and they come together in the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. So we see what's going on here is that this is a full-blown riot. People have been whipped up into a frenzy, they're angry, uh, they're confused, They are enraged, which is a tool of Satan, right? Satan is going to use that anger within that mob to whip them up into just a a frenzy of, of, of anger. Because you know what? The light is, or the darkness is always angry when the light shines upon it. Light shining upon darkness always makes darkness angry. We've seen this in the story of Acts many times. Uh, Chapter four, chapter five, and chapter six. Remember the anger of the council against Paul or against uh, Peter and John. Or remember chapter 8, the anger against Stephen as he preached from the Word. They were so angry that they ground their teeth at him. Or remember... Or uh, Thessalonica, or Berea. Or remember Jesus. Remember how angry they were at Jesus' trial. Jesus said just a few words and they were angry enough to bite nails. They're enraged because the light is shining upon their precious 
darkness. And Satan is using this, but he's also using this confusion. Some of them are confused. Now verse 32, Now some cried out one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion. They're not even sure what they're supposed to be chanting for. Because there's chaos going on. Folks, confusion is always the work of Satan. God never uses confusion. God is not a God of confusion or a God of chaos. And so where confusion exists, the enemy is always at work. So he's whipped them up into confusion. They're not even sure what's going on. Most of them did not even know why they had come together. Now that's a mob mentality for you. I don't know if you've ever been around a riot or a mob or anything like that, but every time that there is mob activity or a riot, we see them on TV, Greece and France and different places, every time you see that, there's always an element of people within that that don't even know what they're doing. They're just whipped up. They're angry because everybody around them is angry, and they're not even sure why they're there or what they're doing there. Remember a year or two ago, the whole Occupy Wall Street thing? You remember all the people that would go and interview those occupiers? And you remember how many of them weren't even sure what they were doing there? They're like, what are you here protesting? We're not sure. And they'd have all different kinds of answers what they were upset about. That's kind of how a mob works. Sometimes you don't even know what you're supposed to be mad about. You're just mad because everybody around you is mad. So some of them didn't even know why they were there. Then verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. So probably what's going on is these people in Ephesus that are so angry, they really don't differentiate between Judaism and Christianity at this point. We know in the early church that, that there was a lot of confusion between Jews and Christians because Christians still called themselves Jews. And, and so people who were outside the church didn't always quite understand the difference between Jews and Christians. That's probably what they've done here. is they've, they're, they're mixing in their anger with Jews and Christians. And then this guy Alexander, who's a Jew... He stands up to try to bring some sanity to it, but they won't even listen to him because they're chanting. Verse uh, 34, they recognize that he was a Jew. And for two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours! We said earlier about how passionate ancient people were about idol, idol worship. and How intense was their idol worship. When was the last time you chanted for something for two hours? for your favorite football team, or your favorite concert, or whatever. When was the last time you sat in worship for two hours? They were passionate about their sins. They were passionate about their idols. And so they chant for two hours. Great as Artemis. And so you see this persecution that is resulting from this new life that sprang forth from the revival of the church in Ephesus. It pushed off the dead leaves... And one of their other results is that it brings on it persecution. The lesson here, folks, is not follow Jesus and Jesus will work everything out for you. The lesson is the closer you are to the King, the more enemy fire you will draw. The closer you are to the King, the more enemy fire you will draw. You guys remember Terrell Owens? He's still playing, I think, but he was, he was one of the greatest all-time wide receivers in the NFL. He was an absolutely awful team player. Remember, he was the guy that every team he played for, he bad-mouthed the quarterback, everybody else on the team. He would tell the press that, you know, we lost because they didn't throw me the ball enough, you know. So he was a terrible team player. But he was an outstanding wide receiver. He, he had... Um, 
a, a body that was big enough and strong enough that he could make plays across the middle like a tight end. But he was also quick enough that he could make the big plays on the outside and down the field. He was a wide receiver of a different caliber. And when he hit the game, for the first year and a half or so that he played NFL ball, his stats were through the roof. But then you know what happened? About a year and a half into his career, his stats bottomed out. And they stayed there for the rest of his career. Yet he continued to get the big money contracts. Teams continued to pursue him. Why? Because whenever he was on the field, the opponent always double teamed him or sometimes triple teamed him. Which meant that one of his, player, one of his teammates was always unguarded. Whenever Terrell Owens was on the field, one of his teammates was unguarded. It is the most dangerous targets that draw the most enemy fire. And as revival comes to this church in Ephesus, and new life springs forth, pushing out the old deadness of sin, the result is not that their lives get all hunky-dory. The result is that they look on their back and they see a great big target that the enemy has drawn there. And so now they are drawing enemy fire. This persecution is a result of the revival. But then we also see a third result of this revival. Verse 38. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who, who is there that does not know that the city of, Eph of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and a sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing that sacred stone, by the way, was a meteor. They believed that they, they saw this meteor fall and they thought that Artemis sent them this meteor. And so they, the, the meteorite was part of the temple of Artemis there. So verse 36, Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Who saw that coming? I guarantee you, if you didn't know the story, you didn't see that coming. Because what we expected to happen was we expected Paul to get beat up or somebody to get beat up and thrown in jail, maybe even stoned or martyred, or, or maybe we expected this voice from heaven to speak and, and everybody runs. We didn't expect a town clerk to stand up and speak words of reason. And the wind was totally taken out of the sails of this whole riot, and everybody just sort of went home. provision of God. God provides in unexpected ways. This is a result, once again, of this revival that came forth from repentance and renewed faith. God shows up in unexpected ways to provide safety for His people in ways that they never would have imagined. I have no doubt that the town clerk doesn't believe in, didn't believe in God. 
that God uses him, just like God used Cyrus. Someone who doesn't even acknowledge him, God still uses him to provide safety, provision for his people. So let me just conclude real quickly by saying this. We've seen here very quick, very clearly, when the, revi- when the repentance that brings forth revival springs forth new spiritual life within us, it pushes out the deadness that is clinging to us. And that changes the culture around us. That invites fire from the enemy, persecution from the enemy, and it brings also God's unexpected provision. Let's, let's as we finish this up, let's just ask ourselves this. What is the spiritual season of your life? What is the spiritual climate of your life? Are you in spiritual springtime? Springing forth new life that is disposing you of the sin that so easily ensnares you that you're putting that off because of this new life that's coming in you from this springtime of revival in your spiritual life? Or are you in the dead of winter? Are you confessing and repenting and defeating new sins in your life? Or are you so desensitized to the Spirit that you actually think that God does not have any sins that He wishes to deal with you about? Are you so desensitized to the work of the Holy Spirit that you actually think that you're a Christian and has it all together? Or maybe you're going backwards. And you're now doing things and you're engaging in thought patterns and emotional patterns and and even activities that you used to abhor. You're now smiling or laughing at, at things that you know break God's heart. Or what about our church? Is our church in spiritual springtime? or spiritual winter? Folks, what moves us from one season to another? What moves us from winter to spring? Repentance. Lifestyle repentance. Sensitivity to the Spirit whose work it is to continually, until the day your soul leaves this earth, continually make you more like Christ. Just as we see in in Paul. How he writes his final letter to Timothy. And says, Timothy, I'm the worst sinner you know. I've never known a worse sinner than Paul. Because that was a man who lived in spiritual spring, spiritual lifestyle, sensitivity to the Spirit, repenting of sin, turning from it, showing evidence.